Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Command Space. I'm your host, Mike Hurley, and I'm joined today by Steve Strezer of Pocket. Hi, Steve. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Very well, my man. Very well. Thanks for being here today. Cool. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. So before, before we kick off, why don't, you, uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you? Sort of, who is Steve? What do you like to be known for? That sort of thing. Sure. So uh, I grew up in uh, Ohio. I started doing software development when I was in uh, middle school and high school. I uh, went to college for software engineering, um, worked at that for a little while, and then the iPhone came out, and uh, there was this huge opportunity. So I dropped out of school, joined Ambrosia Software, and worked for them for two and a half, almost three years, um, working on an app called Soundboard and working on some of their website stuff and some of the other apps. Uh, after that, I moved to San Francisco and joined NG Moco, where I worked on the Plus Plus social gaming network, which ended up becoming Mobage. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I left that to join Pocket, which was then called Read It Later. And I've been developing the iOS app, the uh, browser extensions, some of the website stuff, a whole bunch of stuff there. And uh, that's what I've been doing since. I didn't know you worked at NG Moco. Yeah, I worked there for, like I said, maybe a year and a year and three months, something like that. They got bought out, didn't they, by a, a Japanese telephone company? Yeah, they, it was a Japanese gaming company. Uh, the Japanese, they had been doing the social gaming stuff for uh, you know a few years before it really became popular in the West. Uh, so I, uh, when I was working there, was working on the Plus Plus Gaming Network, uh, which was similar to Game Center, uh, but before Game Center existed. And then uh, DNA uh, acquired them a couple months after I joined because they wanted to expand their social gaming presence outside of the U.S. or outside of Japan. And that was right when it was starting to become popular to build social games like, you know, Farmville and We Rule and things like that, uh, you know, here in the West and, and figuring out how to monetize that. So that was really an expansion of their existing platform kind of into the West. And that's what NG Moco was doing for them. They were kind of taking that basic concept and just developing it further. Interesting. And I guess, really, for you, if you were working on the Plus Plus, did, I don't know if they was... Are these... Are NG Mocha still around? They are. Their their focus is a little bit... Uh, not a little bit. It's pretty drastically different from what it was. They're They're not so much involved in the same kind of games that we kind of remember them for. Like, they're not doing the kind of Rolando-style games. They're really focusing a lot more on... Um, both the kind of social games like We Rule, but they're also expanding out into this multi-platform uh, running on iOS and Android kind of uh, framework for developers who want to build games that you know use the free-to-play monetization style and kind of uh, interacting with friends and things like that. So they're still around and they're still doing a bunch of games, but they're not really the kind of games that I think the tech audience typically goes for so you don't hear so much about it because they're just not building that kind of games for that audience because i was always a massive fan of ng moco games like i loved rolando and i loved we rule and games like that they were a great developer yeah and they're still around they're like a big focus that they're doing now is on android and um Hmm. that was part of the the pivot that happened while I was there was that they changed from being just purely iOS with plus plus to being iOS plus Android with this new, uh, kind of rebranded service called Mobage. And, um, yeah, that's what they've been doing. Is that because of the different, because of the change in target market, like move, like having, you know, the, the big like Asian influence and stuff, or is it, they just moved to Android anyway? Uh, there was, 
a huge opportunity at that point because there really wasn't the same level of deep integration on Android as you saw at iOS around that time. Right. So uh, there weren't very many games that really had a tightly integrated service like that. So, you know, there was a little bit of open faint uh, and a little bit of these like smaller guys, but um, there was a, a much bigger opportunity there and nobody was really capitalizing on it. So, there was a big push to move into Android just because there was a lot of pent-up need for it. Cross-compatibility stuff is always good. Yep. So you work at Pocket now, um, which, but when you started, it was read it later, right? That's right. So I want to talk a bit about Pocket. So um, I mentioned, you know, I just mentioned that it was read it later. And when when did the rebrand happen? It's a couple of years ago now, right? Um, it was actually just about ten months ago. Wow. Um, we started, so I, I joined in September of 2011, uh, so that was a year and a half ago. And at that time, um, we were kind of getting the ball rolling on what was going to be uh, Pocket, uh, basically taking out a lot of the old kind of way of thinking about it and refocusing what we wanted both the product and the brand to be um, and just simplifying the core idea because the kind of core idea had been around for a while, but when it was originally started, there wasn't really the iPhone or the iPhone SDK, because uh, Read It Later had been around since, uh, I think, August of 2007, before you could even build iPhone apps. And we really wanted to kind of just simplify and clean up and refocus what we wanted the product to be. And so... While we were in the middle of developing it, we were thinking of doing this rebrand, and uh, we just finally settled on something that we really, really loved, and that happened to coincide with when we were getting ready to ship this big update. So we said we're going to put all of our energy into making it not just you know a really great app update, but we're going to just completely get rid of some of the old stuff and really look at where we were going with it and kind of focusing on how we can make that uh, as simple as possible. So we got rid of the old name. We brought in Pocket. We started adding some more color and, uh, you know, adding the better images and things like that. And I think it worked out really well. So, you know, obviously it, Pocket sits in a world of, of read it later or saving items for later. Um, there's like a whole industry. There's, there's so many apps that do this stuff. And we're going to talk about that in a bit. But what makes Pocket different um, because it's def- in my eyes it's definitely different but I'd love to know what you guys think makes Sets Pocket apart from, from other services so like Instapaper or Readability yeah I think um, the, the, the big thing for us is that we're focused on all kinds of content not just text so you know we have uh, really really great video support in all of our apps and you can save videos from YouTube and Vimeo and a bunch of these other services. And we present a really, really nice experience on your iPhone or your iPad or Android or on the web or wherever. And uh, really take away a lot of the ugly side of the videos on the Internet. Things like you know, all of the YouTube comments and all of the clutter that goes along with those websites in the same way that we do with text. Um, it's worth noting that, like, Read It Later and Pocket, we were the kind of first people to develop a Save for Later service. And 
that term, like read it later, had kind of adopted or kind of been adopted by other companies who are building these kind of similar products. So, you know, part of the rebrand was we wanted to make sure that, you know, we were separate from those yeah. in terms of how you think about it. Yeah, I was about to mention that, actually, like the, the branding is better because you had the kind of the, you know, like how you know brands like Kleenex and in the UK Hoover, they become like just parts of the language. But the problem for a company like this is it didn't help people know what read it later was people will just hear read it later and maybe assume a different company if it was one that they used but i guess with pocket you've got a brand now right there's like a new brand like a something fresh for it right like when we started since there was nobody out there naming it read it later made a lot of sense because that's what the problem was we were trying to solve yeah but uh you know you see a lot of we saw a lot of articles and people doing write-ups comparing all of the read it later apps. Yeah. And you know what we wanted to do is make sure that you know when people saw us they weren't looking at us and comparing us to other other competitors and going, you know, this is uh the read it later app is not just a feature that is inside of somebody else's product. So by by going with a new brand, we've kind of helped establish that a little bit more yeah. and separate us a little bit from the competitors in that way. So I'm just going to naturally assume that you use Pocket on a daily basis. What do you use it for? What do you send to Pocket? Um, yeah, I absolutely use it on a daily basis on, on multiple devices. I save just about anything that I come across. If, if it's longer than a paragraph and it's uh, interesting or if it's a video that's longer than a few minutes, it goes straight into pocket. Sometimes I'll use that to check it out right away because I really like the way that, you know, obviously, I really like the way that we present content in our app. But, you know, sometimes I'll be just saving it so that I, I have it for later. And I then will look at it, you know, on the subway home or I'll look at it lying in bed or on the couch um, or, you know, while I'm sitting at lunch, I'll, I'll be flipping through some of the articles in there. I don't really treat it like an inbox. I treat it more as like a Netflix queue in the sense that I can just open it up, you know, flick through a few times and there'll be something that, that jumps out at, at me at being, you know, interesting. Uh, the thing about a service like Pocket is that when you save stuff to it, you know that everything that is in there, every time you open it, is going to be stuff that you've already said is interesting. So you don't have to do a whole lot of curation yourself because you've already done that. You can just kind of open the app and go, oh, you know, something in here will be interesting. And you flick through, you look at, you know, find an image that uh, is sitting in your queue that maybe is interesting. Uh, you know, maybe you're particularly interested in politics one day and there's a, you know, photo of Obama sitting next to somebody or something like that, you know, like it's, it lets you, uh, or lets me kind of filter what I want just naturally. And the best stuff kind of just jumps out, you know, as I'm just kind of casually browsing through the app. You see, I use, um, I've been a pocket user since the day it was launched or relaunched. Yeah, um, thank you. <laughs> and it, I, it works for me because I don't really read a lot of articles. Um, I am a heavy RSS user, but I use it more to just try and keep abreast of things. But I don't really. I'm not really much of a reader. Like I don't really read books and stuff. It's just part of my life. I don't. I can't really concentrate for long periods of time and read things. But what I I was using sort of email and Evernote to save 
other types of media. So I send, as, as you do, videos, but I send, for example, if I find a comic book that I want to buy, I send it to Pocket. Like I just email it to, like, you know, I email a Comixology link or something to Pocket. think I'll check that out later. If there's an app that I want to get, I send it there and I kind of use it. I use it for things that, you know, I, I do save some articles in there, but I mainly use it as like a, this is a place where I will check back in and know that I will find something in here that I either want to buy or I want to check out more of or something like that. And it really works for me like that because there aren't really... I've tried a bunch of different services to to, for, to send videos and and these little reminders of purchases to, and this definitely works easiest for me because I can access it everywhere. Yeah, that's great. That's um, definitely a lot along with uh, my use case. I, I I've saved a lot of products and stuff like that to it because it is a great place to kind of collect stuff that you're really interested in, and it really does help with that use case a lot. Like I'll give you an example. Uh, I was doing, uh, at the beginning of this year, I was putting together a new desk for my apartment. And I was just browsing along, you know, browsing the internet, looking at like different websites, Ikea and Target and, uh, you know, Amazon and all these things, looking for pieces of the desk that I wanted to kind of put together and all of the stuff that went along with that. So like a new monitor and a new chair and everything like that. All of that stuff got saved to pocket under a specific tag. I think it was, uh, you know, desk project. And um, when it came time to actually go and sit, like, I have a bunch of products in here that I, I think are really great, you know, just open the app, hit the tag for the desk project, and all of these things that I thought might be appropriate to build this desk uh, were sitting right there. And I could go through them, and if I liked them, I could favorite them, and if I didn't like them, I could delete them. And using that kind of process, uh, you know, really build this desk. And that's not really the kind of way that we typically think of a save for later service like Pocket, mm-hmm. but it really works really well for that kind of for that kind of problem. It's like a personal Pinterest. A little bit, yeah. So you mentioned that Pocket is available on multi- multiple platforms, mm-hmm. um, you know, including the web and different OSs and stuff like that. Do you, are you involved in development across all of the, the platforms that Pocket is available on? Yeah, to uh, varying degrees. Um, I think everybody here is, is uh, you know, we have 10 employees now. Uh, everybody is is involved in just about everything that we do. So, you know, um, I primarily lead up iOS development as well as some of the browser extensions, but I have a hand in Android and I have a hand in the Mac and uh, these things, but I may not necessarily lead those projects. We have a great Android developer. We have a great Mac developer. We have a wonderful designer. We've got all kinds of people who are handling things like support and, uh, you know, press relations and all these things. Um, and they're involved in every project that we work on to varying degrees. Um, so, you know, the, anybody has input on what we're working on at any given point in time. Uh, so my hand is in a lot of them, but so are a lot of other people's. So do you have a preferred platform that you like to develop for? Um, my preferred platforms are, are iOS and the web. Okay. Um, Any specific I, reason? iOS is, uh, like I said, I dropped out of school because of uh, you know, iOS coming in as being something that was going to take over the world in terms of how we develop software. And uh, before I was doing iOS, I was doing Mac and the web. So, you know, though, and Mac and iOS are, are very similar in how their, their development styles are. So from that perspective, like, I had had 
a lot of experience building Mac software that translated really well to building iOS software. And then web has always been kind of this thing that has been there for a very long time and has just been getting more and more powerful, and it's just really fun to work with sometimes. It's a little bit of a pain, but it's, it's fun to work with. Um, I had Michael Simmons on um, of Flexibits last week. Um, right. And there was something that one of our listeners asked him, and I wanted to ask you too. Um, sure. When you see new trends in applications, um, notably things at the moment like flat design and URL schemes, and I know that you guys have like that, um, you have like a really cool, want like a two-tap um, locks, sign up and, and login sort of thing in other applications and stuff like that. Um, at what point do you think about implementing them? Like how important, when you see these sort of trends emerge, do they become something that you guys look at as being an important thing to implement? I tend to think that we don't follow trends just because they're trendy. Right. Um, so, so for example, the, the two-tap auth, other people have implemented that, uh, like, for example, Facebook. If you open an app and it has Facebook support, you can tap a button and it will open the Facebook app and let you log in there, presumably where you've already logged in, and then it will send you straight back to the app. We, we're looking at that as a solution to the problem because we want people to be able to set up apps really, really fast. We don't want people to have to remember their pocket password all the time. It's not because there was a particular trend in the industry, aside from maybe uh, OAuth being you know, better for security. Um, but in terms of like user experience, we really built it because you know, this was a problem that people were having, and we tried to solve it. And I think we came up with a pretty good solution for it. Um, in terms of like the you know skeuomorphic versus flat design kind of debate, like that's not really something that we talk about. We have our own kind of visual language and story we want to tell, and I think we stick to that pretty well. And you know the the design trends and the kind of feature trends that go on, I think they help a lot or they hurt a lot more than they help. Uh, they kind of if, if you spend too much time thinking about them, they can define your entire design process. And anything that defines your design process ends up restricting what you think about when you're designing an app. So if you limit yourself to only skeuomorphic or only flat designed apps, you're not really looking at, is this the best solution for the problem? You're looking at, I have a solution to a problem and that's what I'm going to go with. So I don't think that that stuff really affects how we think about design and how we think about implementing features. Uh, you know, it, it makes for great Twitter debate sometimes, yeah. but um, that's not really how we go about solving problems. So when there are advancements, it's, let's use iOS, it's, it's say that when there are advance, advancements on the iOS platform um, and the SDK, do you have freedom to implement them or does having an app with such a large user base prohibit that? Like if a feature is going to be iOS 7 only, do you have to wait and hold back for adoption rates to increase before you can take advantage of it, even if it would make the app a lot better? Um, I don't think so. I think where it becomes tricky is in managing the experience for people who haven't upgraded. But as iOS 6 showed, uh, that, is a, that is a problem that solves itself very quickly over time. Uh, I think we did a blog post four or five days after iOS 6 came out, 
And in there, we noted that um, 60% of the people who were accessing Pocket on an iOS device were accessing it from iOS 6. Uh, and that's five days after the app or after the OS came out. Right. So, um, in terms of like how we approach features, we really look at it more of uh, a problem of is this going to be the best solution in the short term? Um, we're working on some really great stuff, and some of it uses you know iOS six and iOS five, but some of it we do a custom integration because we think we can do it better and more appropriately for the user. Uh, and that's, I think, kind of our North Star is how do we build the best thing for the user? If that's a solution that can be solved by the OS, great. If it's not, we're going to do something else. So let's say that um, uh, an operating system that you develop for has a really awesome feature that you can take advantage of. Um, do you allow the app to take advantage of that on one platform, making a different feature set from platform to platform. I, I believe that you guys implemented text-to-speech reading on Android articles um, because it, it's sort of built into the OS. Are you happy to sort of, you know, if, if iOS has a great new feature that you can take advantage of, are you happy to implement that even if you can't on another platform? Yeah, I think so. Um, like the text-to-speech is a great example. It's something that's built into the OS uh, in a way that developers can use. So we try to take advantage of those platform strengths where it makes sense. Uh, so we spent some time and really built out not just text-to-speech, but there's UI that goes along with it and integration with the OS and stuff like that. Uh, it's the kind of thing we'd love to do on iOS, uh, but they don't expose that text-to-speech API for us. Now, we could go out and license a third-party text-to-speech engine, but when people think text-to-speech on iOS, they in my opinion, they really want the Siri voice and they want the level of quality that comes with the Siri voice to be the one that's reading it to you. And if you were to license a third-party text-to-speech engine, it wouldn't be that voice. It'd be a different voice. And sure, it would work, but it wouldn't be what people really kind of come to expect from that. So, you know, we can't take advantage of that on iOS, but we can take advantage of it on Android and deliver a really great experience. Similarly, on iOS, you know, we have now integration with the uh, native Twitter and Facebook and Sina Weibo sheet so that if you tweet an article, um, it'll show you the native tweet sheet and it'll hook up to all of your system accounts and everything like that, and it just works really well. And on Android, they have the system of share intents where... Any app that you have registered, uh, you can share to that, and they will pre- present their own user experience uh, inside their own app and send you back. So, you know, we take advantage of the platform strengths where we can, and really use that to build the best platform for iPhone, the best plat- or the best product for iPhone, the best product for Android, the best product for Mac. So, talking about the share intents, that's one of my favorite things on Android. Is I can like just take anything and just send it to pocket like straight from the os like that is awesome i wish that apple would do something more like this i really do like especially because like even windows 8 has it (laughs) i just wish they would do it on ios i feel like it's time now yeah the os has kind of matured to the point where when when the os launched and when the app store launched we really didn't know what the kind of prevailing trends would be and now we've had a few years of building apps. We've seen a lot of those kind of uh, use patterns come up. We know that people want to, to send stuff between apps pretty regularly. And it's 
kind of at the point now where iOS is almost feeling a little restrictive in that regard. Uh, and there's definitely an opportunity for Apple there to kind of bring some of those apps more closely together in a way similar to the share intents on Android where you can just move stuff between apps and it's no big deal. And I feel like it's one of those things that people that haven't used Android can't appreciate how good that is. Right. It's one of it's easily one of my favorite features about that platform. Right. So like when a new app comes out, uh, you know, and nobody's ever heard of it before, but they've shipped an Android app, instantly you have integration with all of the other apps that you already use because of that system. Yeah, That's really great. They don't have to worry about URL schemes, right? That everybody's right. crazy <laughs> for on, on iOS, but they take a lot of work and then they have to be... And at any point, Apple could stop that. They could just stop that. But on Android, it's baked in. And it kind of feels to me like when people talk about the low-hanging fruit of iOS, they forget this. Like that, that you know, people talk about. Oh, allow me to change my default mail application, but really, I think the the main thing that we could do with now is better in app sharing. Absolutely, absolutely. Sharing. And there was a little bit of that. Um, it looks like there might be a little bit of that coming with uh, some of the standard sharing stuff that was introduced in iOS six. Yeah, the uh, activity view, which is the thing in like Safari where it shows you the grid of icons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and things like that. Like it looks like there's an opportunity there that Apple might be exploring in the future, but until they ship it, it doesn't exist, and we can't really rely on them to do it. So yeah, this was what um, I was talking to Marco Arment about this a few weeks ago because he yep. implemented a share to Instapaper in the magazine, and he right. was saying that this was all you know stuff that is in the SDK, and so he also believes that it, there is something like this coming. So we- yeah, there are definitely hints, but until it ships, we can't. We can't pretend it's going to ship. We have to kind of work around it and, and build it out. So, for example, uh, Pocket for iOS, because we don't have share intents, we have a ton of services that are natively integrated. And that takes a lot of work, but our users love it because, you know, if they, they know if they want to share to Delicious or if they want to save to Evernote or if they want to open it in uh, TweetBot to save yeah. or, or to share, something like that, like, there's all of these services that are in there, and, and we spend a lot of time and effort on them and making sure that that works really well. Are they implemented with URL schemes? Is that how they work? The app integrations are. The service integrations, we tend to do our own custom UI and uh, integrate them natively. So they are, like I said, it's a lot of work, and we have to do a lot of testing around that stuff. But it ends up being a really nice experience and there's a ton of services in there that people can use. So I think it really pays off. So um, along the same sort of line, one of the first uh, questions submitted for this episode from at Florian Lionel wants to know if you have any uh, specific wishes for iOS 7, especially development. I know we've kind of probably just spoken about one, but do you have anything else that as a developer or a user that you're really hoping will come to iOS? Yeah, I mean, the, the share intense-like thing is, is the most obvious and the most immediate. I think one of the areas where Android really beats iOS is in this concept of push data, or at least what I call push data. And what I mean by that is that uh, an app like Pocket can have its server push not just a notification, but can actually push data into the app. So while the app is in the background on Android, we can push new articles as you save them, and they're immediately saved into your list. And 
the benefit of that is that every time you open Pocket on Android, you immediately have everything up to date all the time. It doesn't matter you know, if you're at home or at work or on the bus or whatever. It's always there. So if you get on that plane uh, and you want to look at your Pocket list while you're, you have airplane mode on, you know that that stuff is already synced and it all just works. And I think iOS has come a really long way in terms of building out the notification system for push. But the area that would be really, really great, and not just for Pocket, but for dozens and hundreds of apps, is uh, the ability to push data directly into the device so that you didn't have to have an app that was sitting open in the background pulling data and things like that. You could just push changes as they happen into the app itself. And we have that for email, and we don't really have it, and maybe contacts and calendar, but we don't really have that for anything else. And I think that's definitely a sore spot that people don't realize is a sore spot. Yeah, because you get the notification, but you still have to go into the app and refresh it to see the new stuff. Right, and it leads to this weird user experience. So like in the Twitter case, or um, you you open the app because you got a notification of a mention, and you open the mentions tab, and that mention isn't there for a second or two. And then it appears because the app refreshed automatically. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that little kind of thing like that is like a net detriment to a user experience. And that's true in many apps, especially any app that talks to the Internet. So, you know, that, that feature alone would completely change how we use iOS devices in a lot of little small ways. And I think that would be a huge help to the platform as a whole. Um, at Phoneboy would like to know what the biggest challenges are when it comes to removing all of the, he says, chaff, which I think is a good word, away from web content. So you mentioned that obviously you mo- remove YouTube comments and stuff from videos. And, you know, when it comes to saving articles, you remove the ads and that sort of stuff. Like, Is this something you have to constantly work on? Um, yeah, it's... I, would, I want to say there's one big problem, but it turns out there's like, hundreds of little problems and they all come from various different aspects of web development. But I think if there was one big problem, it's that just there's a lot of really bad, badly formed content on the internet. And when you are building a service like pocket, you have to accept everything and make it all look great. And, uh, sometimes that doesn't work so well. And sometimes, you know, you get a little bit of extra cruft along the page because of it. But, you know, we work really hard on it. We have people who are looking at the parser all the time and working on it and making it better. We uh, we have a button in the app for removing or, or reporting articles that have a lot of that stuff, and we take a look at those logs pretty regularly. So, uh, you know, we work on that problem a lot, but it's it's really hard just because there's there's so many pages out there, and they're all formed very differently. Uh, One of the nice things about HTML5 is that it started introducing a lot of semantic elements for dealing with stuff. So in the case of like blog posts or news sites, there are now um, HTML tags for handling, you know, articles and headings and images and sections and captions on images and, you know, work, you know, all of this stuff, like it's been formalized into html5 so you know in the case where we can detect that stuff like it makes it a little bit easier for an application that's looking for that semantic information in a in a page to find it so you know it's getting better in terms of that web development side of things but you know it's not a problem that is going to immediately go away when everybody adopts html5 there's still going to be pages that 
don't render quite right or we can't parse quite right. But, you know, we spend a good amount of time working on making that stuff better. And it's just a chicken and egg problem where, or a whack-a-mole problem where, you know, you're just constantly looking for ways to make all of that stuff better. And we try really hard and make it better piece by piece. So, yeah, I can imagine that that is just constant, constant work. Yep. So but we have a great parser, and, yeah. and uh, when we get reviewed by uh, you know news sites and, and things like that, they always do the the parser comparison, and I think we generally come out ahead. So that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely good. It's one. It's probably the most important thing that people don't always consider. Yep. It has to look good. I mean, if you start chopping out paragraphs or keeping loads of ads and stuff and it's just going to ruin the experience right because there's so many other features that you you know these sort of applications have now this is just the base feature that you have to get right yep and if we get it right nobody notices but if we get it wrong everybody notices (laughs) exactly exactly so i want to take a very quick break um to talk about our sponsor um, that is squarespace and then we'll get back to the discussion so you've heard me talk about squarespace before if you are a frequent listener listener of this show or any show on the 70 decibels podcast network squarespace give you everything you need to make an amazing website they you know by now that they provide you with a fully hosted completely managed environment which allows you to create any website online blog portfolio business site they have fantastic beautiful templates they have a really great layout engine system which allows you to drag and drop layouts and different types of elements on your page all in the web browser they have fantastic hosting that never goes down they have great statistics that are built right in they also have ios and android apps they have 24 7 customer support you can get custom domain names directly from them um, responsive web design everything but they've added something else massive to the squarespace platform which makes it just even more the one-stop shop. And that is Squarespace Commerce. Um, It's never been easier to start selling things online. Basically, Squarespace have now given you a way to sell physical and digital goods straight in their platform. You can implement Squarespace Commerce on any new or existing site. It's just a feature that you add, and, and then it will add a new page, or you can add it to any page that you already have on your site. They've partnered with Stripe so they can help you integrate your store and instantly start accepting payments. They are the payment processor for Squarespace Commerce. You can sell absolutely anything. And what they do is they've got a bunch of different um, pieces of functionality that help you with the physical or digital goods that you want to sell. These include inventory management, customer order processing. You can print packing slips and create customized emails all in one intuitive and fun interface. They They have really handy settings that let you set up multiple shipment methods they help you with tax rules you can do coupons they have uh, for digital goods you can have urls that have timed expiries so if you want to send out like a i don't know maybe you're, somebody's buying an ebook from you and you want to give a 24-hour expiry on the link so they don't send it around to all of their friends you can do that basically this is just another way for squarespace to give you more of the tools you need to create whatever site you want. So if you want to set up a business now and you want to sell things online, in my opinion, there's nowhere else you should go because not only do you get all of the commerce stuff, you also get a fantastic website building platform 
to put it in and vice versa. You can go and check all of this out. You can sign up for a free trial and find out more information about Squarespace and Squarespace Commerce if you go to squarespace.com forward slash 70 decibels. Squarespace then starts at $10 a month for their standard plan, $20 a month for their unlimited plan. If you sign up for a year, you'll get 20% off. And if you sign up for two years, you'll get 25% off. There are additional fees and charges for the Squarespace Commerce plan, their business plan, which you can find out about on the website too. And if you use the code 70decibels2 at checkout, you'll save 10% off your first order. So go check out Squarespace, everything you need to make an amazing website. Right, so let's talk about um, the competition in Read It Later services, as we can now call them. We can call them that now. That's okay. So I think these days people choose between you guys at Pocket and Instapaper. I think that... The, the sort of the playing field has been leveled and people have their own um, reasons for why they would want to pick either one. You both have your own merits um, and, and people make the choice depending on what sort of functionality they want or what sort of experience they want. But along the way, there's been a lot of competition. So readability, Evernote clearly, um, there's been some, you know, some Android-based apps and stuff that I can't even remember. I think Spool was one yeah. for a little while. What was it like to be involved in that I mean, because especially with all the readability stuff, it kind of got a bit crazy for a while. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we're, we're primarily focused on what we're doing mm-hmm. uh, versus what everybody else is doing because there's always going to be competition. And competition's great, but we, we pay attention to it, but we don't really dwell on it. Um, in, in terms of the competition, what we try to do is just continually produce the best product and let people decide for themselves. And, you know, over the, over the course of the last year since Pocket came out, you know, we've been really focused on just iterating and refining and just shipping, shipping, shipping all the time. I think last year we shipped something rough, something on one of the platforms, whether that's, you know, Mac or iOS or web or whatever. Uh, we shipped something roughly once a week in 2012, wow. uh, which is a lot. Uh, we expanded to five more platforms last year, the Kindle Fire, Android tablets, uh, Chrome and Safari, and then, of course, the Mac app. And so, you know, we're really trying to just innovate like crazy and just produce the best app such that, you know, people really notice that. And on top of that, we're, we're trying to improve kind of the side areas of the business. So, like, we've been developing out our support uh, over the last year and, working with publishers a lot more to really make sure that their content looks great and we can help them extend the lifespan of that content. And, um, you know, so we, we, we tend to try to just improve the core platform and all of the products as much as we possibly can and let kind of users decide for themselves. And, you know, over the last, you know, 10 months, users have really noticed we've got a five-star average review on iTunes. We've got uh, I think four and a half stars on Google Play. We've got, you know, if you look at the app on Google Play, it's in the millions of downloads range. Yeah. Uh, and, and Apple and Google noticed. Like, we were the iPad app of the week. We were on uh, the best of 2012 list for Mac and iPhone. We are the editor's choice app on Google Play. So, you know, we, we pay attention to what they're doing, but we don't really focus on it. And that's not what drives us. And that's not what we motiv- or that's not what motivates us. We've got a very long list of things that we want to do. And that's independent of what everybody else is doing. Is there any sort of shared knowledge or collaboration or anything like that that goes on between the services? 
I mean, I see you and, and Marco sort of help each other out with some things at points with development and stuff. Yeah, me and uh, Marco and I, we've talked a few times, both on you know Twitter and on email and stuff like that. And um, you know, we we help in like the small ways more so than the big ways. Things yeah. like you know, if if he's working on a specific problem and I have some domain knowledge there, I'm, I'm happy to lend it to him. Uh, you know, and vice versa. Uh, you know, both of us share a, a need to make content more digestible, and I think that's that's great. But you know, we have very different approaches for how we actually go about solving that problem, which is good. I guess you'd kind of want that in a way. Yeah, but yeah, I, I didn't want to dwell on that too much because it's kind of like a. I guess it's an uncomfortable thing to tell me if you hate each other. It's, it's not really what I was going for. But it was just, I just thought it had been interesting to see that, you know, things definitely did get heated for a while. Um, but I think it's kind of calmed down a bit. But there seems to be just a lot of companies that try and get into this space um, mm-hmm. and a lot of companies that try and bolt it on to something that they're doing. But yeah, and that's uh, like I said, when we started this back in 2007. And it was the only service, and a lot of other services came along. That you know, that name "Read It Later" kind of became adopted to be all of these other apps. And you know, having that rebrand really helped us kind of set ourselves apart as uh, you know the people who are really pushing for this because we saw an opportunity to kind of take this idea and make it mainstream as opposed to just you know something that the the tech audience would like. And that's really been the focus of what we've been trying to do with Pocket, is take this idea and make it mainstream and make it uh, accessible for everybody and not just like tech audience kind of people. So I want to talk about App.net a little bit. Sure. Um, you have been very involved in App.net since the very early days. Yep. Um, and I wonder why. Like, what, what is it for you about App.net that as you've been so enthralled and been working so hard on it, you know, evangelizing it, I think, in a way, whether intentionally or not, um, and just being really involved in the service? Yeah. Um, so back in 2010, 2000, yeah, 2010, um, I was actually working on a Twitter client because everybody was working on a Twitter client back then. And, um, I was, and I don't even know any coding languages. Yeah. Well, a lot of developers were uh, were working on that. It was a very hot space at the time. Yeah. And at the time, I was trying to build something that was a little bit different from other Twitter clients. But as Twitter kind of became a little bit more aggressive about taking over the space, they acquired Tweety and they started revamping their website and pushing out all these mobile apps and things like that. It became clear that uh, they were going to dominate this this market, and whatever was left, you know, fighting over the scraps of that was not going to be great for the developer. But I thought it was a really interesting space because there is a ton of opportunity for UI design, kind of innovation and experimentation, and uh, I saw a lot of that same kind of energy in App.net because. Everybody talks about wanting to pay for a service like that, and App.net kind of came along and, and filled that void and executed that vision uh, of being a really great developer platform, a really great user platform, something that was really focused on users as opposed to on advertisers, things like that. Like, I thought it was you know just a really interesting opportunity, and 
I've been working a lot with their API because it's a pretty easy API to work with and it's super, super flexible. Uh, Pocket was actually one of the first apps that integrated app.net into its sharing services. And we actually have a really great integration with it because if you share something to app.net via Pocket, uh, rather than just gluing on a URL at the end like you have to do on Twitter, we'll actually highlight the name of the article and turn that into a link. So if you, know, if you were to share, say, command space episode 30 to app.net, it won't say command space episode 30 HTTP colon slash slash blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. It will just say command space episode 30. And you click that that title and it opens the link. Like it's just a little bit of a refinement on the user experience there. And, and, you know, app.net provides the ability to do a lot of those things. So I think it's a really interesting developer platform. I think they're working on it like crazy. I think if you look back at the development of Twitter, they were not moving nearly this fast. Uh, You know, app.net shipped their, you know, messaging APIs a couple months ago and they just shipped their file API a month ago. And, you know, they're, they're, they're working on this thing like crazy and it's hard to believe that this thing is only like what six months old something like that like when you look at all of the work that they're putting into it i think it's incredible and i think it's a great platform for developers if they can get the users which is important yeah and i think they've got some stuff in the oven that is really going to help drive some of that stuff because now they're at the point where they have a a real business they can, you know, pay the bills and things like that. So they can start being a little bit more aggressive with how they bring people in. Um, I think it's worth noting, too, that, you know, now that they have this really high-end messaging platform, there's an opportunity for them to kind of develop the product more towards people who want a chat service as opposed to a replacement for Twitter. Because they started off with having this replacement for Twitter kind of... uh, you know, interface. That was the first thing that they shipped to kind of prove the value of the network. And now they have this really first class messaging platform. It's not just Twitter DMs. It's, you know, you have that, but you have group chats and you have chat rooms and you've got all these weird things and people can build their own semantics on top of it. Like there's a lot of things that they can do there. And it's a unique platform that hasn't really been done before. Yes. Yeah. See, I sort of, I say this a lot. Um, and, Dalton easily helped me form this when I spoke to him the first time is that I don't really see the future of app.net as a Twitter clone and I think the problem is too many people are thinking about that in a narrow way um, and I just the fact that they have multi-recipient um, direct messaging like private messaging shows mm-hmm. to me that I mean I just want somebody to build a really awesome collaboration tool out of app.net Yeah, um, and I think that with the file storage and stuff it's definitely something that they could do yeah, if if you think about it, like they have they have the ingredients for a lot of different services kind of built into one thing. They've got the social networking side of things, like so uh if you were to imagine they were to build a, a product like, you know, for, for the enterprise or for businesses, you know, the Twitter style thing, well there you have uh, something like Yammer. Or you, uh, there's a couple other companies that do services like that. You have the chat side of things. So you can replace services like Campfire or HipChat. You have the file storage. So you can replace services like Dropbox and Google Drive. And like they have all of these ingredients there. And there's a real opportunity for a developer to come along and build some really high end, high quality uh, enterprise tools, uh, especially enterprise. But you could imagine things for the, 
you know, for small group projects and for classrooms and things like that on top of this API. Like, there's a lot of opportunity there. They built a really flexible, flexible platform. And uh, I think part of the problem is they, they've maybe focused a little bit too much on the social network side of things. And that's not really, to me, the appeal. The appeal is all of the other things that you can do with it. And now we're starting to see some of the apps that actually come out uh, that take advantage of those features in a different way than just being a Twitter client. There's, there's Patter on app.net, which is this big open AOL-style chat room from you know, 15 years ago. Like They brought that idea back, and now they have this awesome chat system so that you can just go hang out in rooms with people who are interesting and, and based on topics and things. like. There's a whole lot of things that they can do. And if you step out of it as being just a Twitter style app. So, I mean, obviously, you know, we've, we've spoken about that it isn't just a timeline service, but that is a, a big part of it at the moment. Um, so I wonder what, what keeps you on Twitter, like to, to use that there? Why do you still use Twitter and not, and you know, you haven't migrated over to app.net entirely? Oh, that's a good question. I think, well, part of it is that I have a pretty large audience on, on Twitter. I have a pretty large audience on app.net too, but I have a pretty large audience on Twitter. And I try to use Twitter for more than just being a developer. Uh, you know, I have uh, a lot of people who follow me because of my music making or a lot of people who follow me because I tweet about my little pony or things like that. <laughs> like there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons that people do that. I think the app.net community right now is a little bit more geared towards the tech heavy uh developer kind of audience and i think that's great like i think there's room for both i don't think you have to be on one or the other a lot of the times when i when i'm posting on app.net it's more technical it's more development it's less lifestyle uh than say going on twitter twitter for me is a big part of it is development, but a big part of it is also all of this other stuff. There's like, you know, the whole weird Twitter phenomenon that, you know, the accounts that just spew nonsense, you know, things like that. Like I, I, I love the character of the community on Twitter and, uh, you know, I love the character of the community on app.net too, but they're different. Yeah. So there's been a big hoo-ha this week and it's, it's kind of blown up this week about pricing on app.net and app.net clients. Mm -hmm. So NetBot went free and then Repost uh, went free, um, citing that the reason they had to go free was because NetBot went free. I'll include a link in the show notes um, to Glenn Fleischman's, one of Glenn Fleischman's articles on The Economist that gives a bit of backstory. But, you know, it's part of it because um, the app.net guys, they have the developer incentive program where they pay out to developers every month. There's, you know, depending on how popular an app is, um, which is dependent on user reviews, monthly user reviews, um, they pay out a, a share of $20,000. And I wonder what, I mean, I've seen you make some sort of jokey comments and stuff um, on app.net and Twitter about it. And what, what, what is your feeling about this? Like, so we've got apps that you know originally everybody believed that you'd be able to charge a premium for app.net apps because it's people that wanted to pay but without but now there's a limited user base of people that can buy these applications so to increase the amount that they can get from the developer incentive program apps are dropping their barrier to entry for people and driving down the price maybe even further than twitter apps what are your thoughts on this 
yeah, I think the what what you really want is for applications to be continually developed as, as a user. What you really want is for these apps to be continually developed, and in order to do that, there has to be an economic ex- incentive, at least historically. So, having the developer incentive program, I think, is a great thing um, because it does help those apps be funded and you know continue their development have people pay for them the i think that there may be i think there there are two problems with it right now first of all um it's not quite big enough in terms of how much money they're paying out i think there's a lot of apps on there and if you if you start cutting up the numbers like i don't know necessarily that any one app short of a whale like netbot can really sustained development on that kind of revenue. So, you know, they're, they're, I think when they, they did their introductory post talking about this, one of the things that they said was, you know, as the, as the user base grows, they will grow the pool of money. And I think that would be uh, a, a big thing that would help there. I think the other problem is that a whale like NetBot can come in and take up the majority of that money. Like if they're making eighty percent of the money, that leaves twenty percent for everybody else to fight over. That's not quite good, uh, and I understand why they started it that way. But I I would love to see them kind of branch out more, and maybe they, that means like you know a cap for developer or something like that. But you know if you combine those two, you could still have the kind of big name app like Netbot take up. A, a decent chunk, maybe not the majority share of that money, but um, have the ability for some of the smaller guys who are still significant to get a, a bigger piece of it. I think I think would be important, and then growing that that share, or I'm sorry, growing the pool of money that would be available. You know that 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 would help balance out the kind of cap. Um, so that would be like two ways that I would I might improve it in terms of like the paid app stuff. I mean. Like I said, you don't necessarily want to pay for an app. You want to feel like you're contributing to making that app succeed and and survive. And I think if you were to have apps that were just focused purely on how much money they made at the, at the point of sale, um, that's not so much sustainable, especially in a small user base, because I think there's, what, 30,000 users, 40,000, something like that on yeah. app.net right now. Like you can't really sustain a whole lot of development on that. So, you know, if that number was to you know blow up by 10x, maybe that would be a different discussion. I think today, though, that's uh, that's a tough sell. I agree. So um, let's talk a little bit about side projects. You are a man sure. with many, so you do um, you've contributed some app.net stuff. Like, a, what do you, is it? Um, Appageddon was something that you created? Apparchy. Apparchy, that's it. I don't know where I get Appageddon from. Um, <laughs> that was where you basically was able, you, you hacked the Twitter app and was able to get app.net inside the official Twitter app, right? Is, is that the right thing I, to say? It wasn't so much a hack. It was a, uh, so in the Twitter app, there's this thing called uh, the proxy URL. And what that is, is uh, a, a way, so back up here. The Twitter app talks to the Twitter API, and the Twitter API is available at a domain name, api.twitter.com. And it sends requests that are structured in a certain way to the 
a, the Twitter API server, and the Twitter API server returns structured data back. So what the proxy URL setting lets you do is say, well, instead of pointing to api.twitter.com, point over here because that's where you'll actually find it. And there's reasons to do that. Like if you're on a corporate network and they block Twitter, like you can run a proxy server and get around it. Like there's reasons for that to be there that are legitimate that point to how the, the Twitter service itself works. But since the Twitter API sends structured data and expects structured data back, and that's how it does all of the stuff in the app, uh, if you were to build a proxy server that instead pointed somewhere else, and returned that same structured data back, but from a different source, you could effectively convince the Twitter app that the data that it was loading was from Twitter, even though it wasn't. Uh, This is not a new idea, by the way. I think Tumblr did this a couple years back when Tweety had this feature. They did, yeah. So... Uh, that's not a new. That's not a new idea. I didn't invent that idea. That was somebody else's. But I saw an opportunity there to kind of build something into uh, build a proxy server that basically did that, but for app.net. So as long as as well as things like that, you have um, your own blog, at informalprotocol.com. You have music projects like um, what, the Gangnam Style and Party Rockers mashup that you did. Yep. Which was a YouTube sensation. Yeah, for a little bit there, until they got it taken down. <laughs> <laughs> How important are these sort of side projects to you? Are they like just a way for you to blow off some steam? Or? Um, they're part of, part of what I try to do is you know provide people with entertainment, I guess, uh, and, and a way of I guess it's the wrong way to put it, but I try to take technology and the pieces of technology that I understand to build things for people. Like the the greatest thrill for me is when I can build something for somebody or build something for the wide audience and then they tell me or they talk about it or you know they like it. Like that's that's a huge thrill to me. I love being able to make people happy like that. And that's a big part of what I do at Pocket is, you know, building this app that people love. You know, the, there's no greater thrill for me than when somebody goes on Twitter and recommends it to somebody else without prompting or without anything else. They're just like somebody tweets like, oh, you know, I have all these tabs in my browser. And then somebody replies, what you should check out pocket. Like that's a huge thrill for me. That, that's why I come into work every day. Uh, and in terms of like making music and doing the side projects and stuff, it's an extension of that. I love being able to build things for people or make things for people and then for them to enjoy it. That's, that's really what motivates me in a lot of these, a lot of these ways. So how, when you think of something, when you have some idea, how do you decide if it's something that you should pursue? Um, well, I, I start making it pretty much. Uh, <laughs> I just, I just start working on it. I think, like my my side projects folder has about two or three hundred little folders inside of it that all have prototypes at various stages of production uh, s- somewhere in there. Like there there might be a project that I make where I just try to see you know what can I do with this uh, you know UI widget in iOS six or what can I do if I take these two songs and I try to mash them together. Like how does that how does that sound? How does that work? Uh, and just taking that and seeing how far I can go with it. But the end result of that, obviously, I haven't shipped 300 of these little projects. Like, most of them just die off because they, you know, the concept didn't work out or I didn't feel like I 
had something worthwhile to actually ship or this or that or the other thing. So I think it really just comes down to like what makes a good product, whether that's an app or whether that's music, like what makes a really great product and what is going to get people's attention and what is, what are people going to love? And that's, if, if I can't figure out a way of executing that, uh, then I, then I won't. There you go. Um, and at Falgana wants to know what your secret project is that uses UI collection view. <laughs> well, I, I, I have nothing to announce today, but uh, I'm, I'm working really hard on that. I'm hoping to ship that pretty in the next couple months. Uh, but right now, my primary focus is, of course, on Pocket. And if, uh, you know, that any of the side project stuff, that, that all falls into whatever free time is left over from that. So... Uh, you know, you'll you'll see that. I think it will be uh, especially interesting to uh, podcast audience, but we'll we'll mm-hmm. see where that goes. But I'm I'm not ready to talk about that one just yet. <laughs> you have piqued my interest now. Yep. <laughs> so I need to ask you, being being in the app world, what are some of your favorite apps? What's the stuff that you really love, even if it's ones that everybody loves? Favorite apps. Um, let me pull out my phone here. <laughs> One of my absolute favorite apps of all time is is One Password, uh, and I don't think I think this audience is going to know very well, but I'll sing its praises anyway. Uh, I keep everything in One Password, and I use that uh, the password generator all the time. Uh, I, I pretty much don't remember any of my passwords anymore except for my master password. Like it, it works super well. It does the job, and I couldn't be happier with it. Um, in terms of other apps, I think like I, I consume a lot of, of media and TV shows and movies and stuff. Uh, so one of the apps that I use on a daily basis is called Plex, which is this media playback and consumption uh, app. It runs on the Mac uh, and on, I think, Windows and Linux and stuff, too. They have an, a great iOS app for it and like, a great web app for it, and it lets me store all of my TV shows and movies on, on my computer, and then it downloads all of this metadata about it. So, like, for a movie, it'll download who, who's in it and what genre is it and what, you know, rating is it and what year did it come out and who's the director and all of this stuff. And it downloads beautiful cover art and then background images for all of this stuff and, you know, presents all of that across whatever platform you're looking at. It will stream stuff to you over the Internet. It will transcode video and stream it to your iPhone. So, you know, if I'm sitting at work and I really want to catch up on an episode of The West Wing or on, uh, you know, whatever other show, I can use this to do it. And it will stream it, you know, from my apartment uh, pretty flawlessly. It works really well. Um, Let's see. I've been using a lot of, uh, you know, Google's apps on iOS lately. So yeah. like Google Maps, uh, you know, Chrome, Gmail, they've come a really long way in terms of how they approach design on iOS. And I think they've started to get into a cadence where they're really able to execute really good apps. Maybe not the best of the best, but they're certainly excellent apps. Um, and I, I have hundreds of apps on my phone. <laughs> what's, in your, what's in your dock? What do you have in your dock? Well, my dock is a little bit different because I, I keep two folders in the dock and pocket. Um, and that's all I keep. Dock, the the right. two folders are based on apps that are sort of remote control apps uh, or things that 
kind of access internet data. So that's that's where I keep, for instance, that Plex app and uh, you know VNC app and uh, the remote app that Apple makes and like Dropbox and Dropler and things like that. So that's in one folder, and then I have another folder that's full of like social media apps. So. You know, I have, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter and uh, the app.net client I use, which is Felix and Instagram and Path and an instant messaging app and a Reddit client. Like all of these apps uh, are in one folder. And then I have Pocket that sits nicely between them. So uh, I, I use my dock a little bit differently on my iPhone than most people because I, I like to keep the apps that I'm using all of the time within two taps uh, from any spot on the home screen. Mm-hmm. And by keeping the folders in the dock, you know, any time that I'm on any page of the home screen, I can just tap the folder and tap the app and it's open. And there's a bunch of apps that I keep in my home screen that are like, you know, you hit the home button and then you hit the, the app icon and then everything else I just find a spotlight. Cool. So before I let you go, there's one thing that I begrudgingly must mention. <laughs> because it's all anybody would ever ask me about. Yeah. You are a fan of My Little Pony. You are a self-confessed brony, right? Yes, I am. And this Very is proud of that. This is in reference to My Little Pony Friendship is Magic, yes? Yes. So this is a specific cartoon show. It's a cartoon, isn't it? Right. It was created. It's not in reference to the um, pony <clears throat> toys that you would brush the hair of as such. Right. This was uh, so. This, this was a show that started two and a half years ago. It was started. It was started in late 2010, and they, they basically did a complete reboot of the series, um, and they brought on a lot of really great people from the TV animation world. Uh, it was developed by Lauren Faust, who worked on Powerpuff Girls and Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends and a bunch of other shows. They brought in animators from every cartoon that you can imagine as being, you know, the successful cartoons for the last 20 years. They've got amazing voice actors. They've got really great writing, really great music, all of this stuff. And uh, to me, TV animation is one of the kind of forgotten art forms of the 20th century. It's something that, you know, we, we see on TV, but it's not really been celebrated in the same way of like film animation or you know, other forms of like music or art or whatever. Um, but to me, it's, it's one of the most profound, I think. And it's one of the most ubiquitous. We see it on TV all the time, but we don't really recognize it so much. And, uh, you know, I watch cartoons all the time, cartoons yeah. from when I was a kid, cartoons that are on now. And, you know, when the, my little pony thing happened, you know, I was think like everybody else, like, you know, just thinking, Oh, this was a bunch of internet trolls who, you know, were just, watching this stuff ironically or making fun of it or posting it on the internet to annoy other people. But then I started watching it and it turns out it's a really good show and it's not, it's focused for kind of the uh, feminine audience, but uh, they have, you know, really great characters that they have inner character drama and all of the characters are flawed in certain ways. And the episodes talk about that. Like, it's not just a little girl show it's it's something that like like I'll, I'll give you an example. One of the episodes uh, at the end of season two was about uh, the uh, a wedding between the two members of royalty, which sounds kind of you know uh, a little bit like of a girly episode, right? 
But turns out that uh, during the middle of this, there was a, a coup where a, a monster tried to take over the kingdom and start a war and like destroy everything. And they had to come and save the day. Like it was like stuff like that. Like it's it's got a little bit of that feminine side. So if that's not your thing, that's not your thing. But the the stories are really well written. The characters are are brilliant. Uh, the show is just really good and I, I love it but stepping back from that once you get past the show it turns out that there's this huge community on the internet that is subscribed to this as I'm sure you've noticed um, and they're out there producing you know custom works of art and they're doing music and making uh, you know videos that are either parodies or satire or whatever like uh, there's a bunch of people who are writing, you know, fan fiction and things like that. Like, there's this huge community of people who are creating stuff. And um, that's not necessarily true of a lot of communities on the Internet. A lot of communities tend to be pessimistic and they tend to try to take down and, you know, denigrate people's work and things like that. This is a community that generally tends to be supportive of things like that and develop uh, you know, help people develop their own skills and things like that. Like it's just, it's, it's a really tight community and it's, it's something that's really interesting and fascinating to me, especially because a lot of them are men who are embracing things that are typically feminine. And that itself is, is cool because it helps break down gender stereotypes and it helps make a lot of men realize that gender stereotypes don't really make a lot of sense because they're watching a show about cartoon ponies. So, <laughs> you know, like there's, there's a lot of elements to it that are, are both fascinating and interesting above and beyond just the show. Do you think that, um, brony culture would be seen differently if it wasn't with a show like this? Like if it, let's say, my little pony hadn't existed before or if it just wasn't so feminine like if it wasn't like because i know that adventure time is another cartoon that many people enjoy which is on my list of things to watch soon because i've Mm -hmm. been told how great it is and i think people that love adventure time are not really treated the same way as people that love my little pony and do you think that it's because of the sort of intended um outward audience of the show that makes it a kind of a thing that I don't really know if, if saying people would make fun of it is the right word, but I guess people do in a way, don't they? They make fun of bronyism. Oh, yeah. And that's totally like to be expected. I think part of that comes from the fact that it's almost so, I want to say extreme, uh, in the sense that you know, a- anybody who's older than you know, 18 years old, they, had, they, they knew of what My Little Pony used to be. They knew that it was, you know, uh, there was all of the toys and, and things like that. And it was really more of a marketing effort to kind of sell the, the products and um, things like that. There were TV shows about it, but they were not, they, they were very one-dimensional TV shows. It was all about tea parties and, and pretty dresses and things like that. It wasn't really very, very appropriate, like in terms of an art form. And all of the people who came into this community started from a common place, which is how good this reboot of the show actually is. 
they all came because they watched it because somebody made them watch it or they heard about it on the internet or something like that. They came and watched it and they fell in love with it because it is a really good show, in my opinion. So that's where it all comes from. But a lot of people who are outside who haven't watched it or who watched it and didn't like it or whatever, like they don't see the same things that we see in it. And they see the things that they understand about My Little Pony from, you know, 20 years ago, where it was this consumer kind of driven marketing product. Um, And on top of it, it's the ultimate gender stereotype to say that, you know, girls are the who's supposed to like ponies. It's not supposed to be boys. So, you know, it's a little bit of an understandable reaction to say this is not something that boys should like. But at the flip side of that is there are a lot of men now who can at least see that, you know, the gender stereotypes that we're talking about here are meaningless because they're now watching a show about cartoon ponies, which is the (laughs) ultimate sin if you subscribe to the idea of there being a gender stereotype in the first place. I don't think you could have put that any better. But I felt that we had to address it, and I felt that... I actually feel... I'm kind of pleased that we did. Because it's interesting. It's interesting to It's it's, it's a misunderstood thing, for sure. And I think that comes with the territory. Yeah. Um, But... The, the community that's growing around it is just getting bigger and bigger. So uh, it's, it's worth at least not being dismissive about it, yeah. I think, um, and, and at least trying to understand. You don't have to watch the show. You don't have to subscribe to the, ideolo- the ideology. You don't have to think that you know, uh, men should watch pony cartoons. Like You don't have to think about that, but I, I think it would behoove a lot of people to just maybe consider a little bit more that you know, this kind of stuff isn't just for irony's sake it's not just because uh you know it has nothing to do with like sexuality or anything like that it's re- it's really just about being a a high quality cartoon that happens to be for girls but because they made something that was universally liked it's universally likable see it was like i didn't i've seen people i haven't watched a show myself but mm-hmm. i knew it wasn't stupid because people i respect enjoy it if that makes sense yeah. So I knew not to judge it in that respect, but I just have never watched it. But maybe I and you will, don't have Steve. to. Maybe but... I will give it a go. <laughs> maybe I will. So, buddy, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Oh, thank tell- you. Why don't you tell people where, where they can find you online? So uh, you can find Pocket at uh, on Twitter and Facebook and app.net where Pocket uh, I think maybe we're Pocket Co. on Facebook or something like that. Uh, if you're looking for some really great curated content that's some of the more popular stuff you can see in Pocket, you should go follow Pocket Hits on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me, I'm Steve Streza, on Twitter and app.net. And uh, I blog a little bit, and I'm trying to do a little bit more, at informalprotocol.com. And that's a tech blog and about tech news and cocoa development and tech culture and things like that. Great. So we had, a, we had a good conversation about App.net today, and my guest next week is Mr. Dalton Caldwell, CEO of App.net, so look out for that one. Um, I may also be talking to Bill Kunz as well, Kunz Kunz, who's develop, lead developer of Felix, which is a, my favorite App.net application. So hopefully that will be a... Say again, sorry? 
Mine too. Yeah, I love Felix. I think it's a great app. I pref- I just feel like it's when Netbot was good, it's not as focused on right. Um, it, you know, they're obviously maintaining a dual code base, so it's a great app. But I think Felix does some things better. But we'll talk about that hopefully if, if Bill can make it. But definitely we're going to be talking to Dalton next week, so I hope that you tune in for that. You can uh, find me on social networks, app.net and Twitter. I'm iMike, I-M-Y-K-E. Uh, thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of Command Space. Until next time, bye-bye.